I would not be born another person in any other skin color. I'm very, very, very proud and happy to be a Black woman. Mm -hmm. As we think about being color brave, it's just to ask yourself, have you invited people in your world who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't come from where you come from? When you walk into a room and it's all one of anything, all Black, all white, whatever it might be, all one of anything, are you getting the best out of the opportunity there to share and converse and create bigger and better ideas? That was Melody Hobson, president of Ariel Investments and chairman of the board of DreamWorks Animation, exploring what it means to be color brave in corporate America. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. In this session, Vision, Truth, and Success, Melody will share her insights and inspiration about what it means to be successful professionally, personally, and financially as a woman of color who's breaking barriers and staying true to her vision. Let's get started. Hello, Melody. Hi. The goal is really to have more of a conversation, I think. And so you're going to be able to Bob and weave with whatever. I won't do that. I promise. (laughs) With whatever we come up with. So let's just dive in there. Okay. So a lot of people look at you and they think, wow, she's really got it all together. She's had it all together for so long, forever. In fact, she's had it all together. But a lot of people don't really know kind of your background and that you grew up the child of a single parent. Mm -hmm. Some of the situations that you were in were a little bit the neighborhoods that you grew up in were a little bit rough, as it's been called. So what did you take away from that? What is that that's in your DNA that helps you kind of power forward based on your background? Well, first of all, I just want to thank you all for being here. This is a very exciting experience. And I've had so many women just be so great as I was coming in. So thank you, first and foremost, for that. It's great to be in Philadelphia. When I think about my background, I don't think my background is unique versus a lot of other people. I think there are a lot of us who have had struggles early on that I think created in many ways great stress, but great opportunity for us. And so I think that when I think about that background, I think it really gave me a tremendous amount of grit. I think it really taught me that when you fall down, you get up. And I think that it really gave me a perspective that things happen. When I was a kid growing up, my mom always used to say to me when we'd have some setbacks, she would just say in a very matter of fact way, I've described my mom as being brutally pragmatic, which she was. (laughs) She would say things like, life is not fair. And that was it. There was no other discussion. There was no more conversation about it. It was just, you know, if you said something was not fair, she had no time for you. She just said, life is not fair. So I think those early days taught me not to expect that for some reason I was owed more, deserved more. Now I can expect more of myself, but it wasn't something that I was entitled to. Right. You had many, many firsts also in your career. What is it like sometimes? I mean, we heard in the opening session about when you're in the room, you got invited in the room because you belong in the room. So for you, when you got in the room and you were the first one in the room, what was that like? Did that carry this sense of incredible responsibility? Yes. So I've talked about the fact that in the Black community, we talk about being first and only. 
And some people talk about that with a great deal of pride. And I don't think it's something to be proud of. I think that first and only is only so that you can be longer term first of many. And I think that the one thing about being first is it's an interesting moment, I have to tell you. So an example of this is I'm the first Black woman to be chairman of the Economic Club of Chicago. It just happened. The club is 90 years old. Wow. 90. So when you say, well, that's a really great accomplishment, you're like, it's a little late, right? I mean, that's my first thought. It feels bizarre that in 90 years, no one came before me. And I don't think I'm the first person who was qualified to be chair. So one, it's time and time catching up with things that should happen. Another is recognizing that, again, I do see why I was selected and what makes me very qualified for the job, but it just doesn't mean that other people weren't qualified before me. So I think holding that in your mind that at the same time, I think very important so that you, one, can kind of get over yourself, but two, understand that it only underscores the injustice and what we all have to continue to fight for. Do you ever feel like when you're in a position where you're first, that you have to prove yourself. You have to prove something to someone. I don't Are you think just that's going about being just... first? I think that's about being a woman. I think that's about being a person of color. I think there is a proving that takes place every single day that we have to be very aware of. Again, it just is. It's not good or bad. It just is. That's the hand we're dealt. I have a friend who used to be on the board of Starbucks with me, Olden Lee, who's very, very smart and was the former head of all of HR for Pepsi. And once I was lamenting with him about something like this, and he looked at me and he said, Melody, how long have you been black? <laughs> it's like one of my favorite lines ever. It was, again, it just is. This is not something that we've just spent a tremendous amount of time talking about because it just is. Now, the thing is, how can we make it different for others? How can we create a situation that does not require us to be exceptional at everything in order to be equal? We have to be exceptional. And I think part of that is making sure we show up in such a way that rebukes and dispels stereotypes that are out there and, again, creates that path so that you're not first, you're first of many. I saw Shonda Rhimes walk in, and I love Shonda. She knows that. And she talks about normalizing situations. The real world, is, a, in, especially in America, is very diverse. We shouldn't be that we're outliers when we're there. It should be that it's just normal. Creating a situation where more of us being in the room is normal. I completely stole that from her, that it's not my original thought. But I actually thought it was a very, very powerful idea. I find it sometimes exhausting, though, when people will say, like, their expectation of you is something that it shouldn't be based on the fact that you are a woman or you are a person of color. So I'm sure many people in this room have been told, oh, you speak so well. Well, yeah, that kind of thing. Do you find that sort of, I don't know, expectation or to somewhat exhausting? Do you ever get tired? Are you ever fatigued by... Yes, every day, but I'm sure you all are. Again, this is not me in isolation. It's exhausting, but it is. I'm again, back to my mother's just, and so we can stand here and admire the problem, or we can do something about it. We talk about that a lot at Ariel. Talking about it doesn't move the needle on anything. It is a job every single day. And we have extra burdens as women, as mother, as people of color. There are a lot of things that come with, that a lot of added responsibilities that come with who we are. We have to accept that. 
and recognize that that in many ways is a gift that comes with the opportunities we're also being given. Right. And so if I have to carry that extra load and live the life that I live, I'm willing to do that. What I remind myself on my worst day, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about, on my worst day, I tell myself, I'm not in a field picking cotton. Right. I mean, the, that was reality for us. I didn't have a baby in a field and have to get up and keep working again. I mean, let's just think about it. And so when we think about the exhaustion of trying to push our community and society and our gender forward relative to dying during the civil rights movement, I'll make that trade and I'll carry this burden and I won't complain about it because that's the least I can do. You talk about, and this is, we're about to go right on into the third rail here. So you talk about, instead of America being colorblind, that we actually need to be color brave. So I'm going to need everybody to just pull up their big girl britches because we're going to be talking about some really tough stuff. What does being color brave mean? So here's where I got this idea. I was asked to do this TED Talk. And I have to tell you, TED Talks are really hard. <laughs> Horrible. Memorized. You hold nothing, no paper, nothing. <laughs> and you speak for 16, 17, 18 minutes, whatever they give you. And I decided I wanted to do it on race. And that was a few years ago before, one, a lot of things were continuing to go on, but maybe they hadn't come to this frenetic pitch that we're hearing about today. But of course, we're all aware of all the things that were happening every single day. So I decided to do it on race, which was in and of itself interesting because I told people I was going to do a TED Talk on race. And I had people literally tell me I was going to ruin my career and my life, that it was going to be the worst decision <laughs> I've ever made. The day of my actual speech, I was in the green room waiting to give my talk. And this woman was sitting next to me and she said, what are you talking about? And I said, race. And she said, grace, that's fantastic. And I said, no, no, no. I said, race. And she turned away from me because it was like, well, she's going to start talking about things that are really hard and make me uncomfortable. Yeah. And race makes people uncomfortable as a conversation. So I said, I'm going to go right for it because I felt uniquely positioned to have the conversation. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. I have observations and I have life experience that I thought were important to share to put some of this in perspective. Not necessarily so much for our own community, although there were learnings, hopefully, in my speech there, but for others. And so specifically, the thing that kept bothering me, let me use that word, was that I would meet people and they would say, I'm colorblind. I don't even see color. Right. And they would then talk to me about how they were raising their children to be colorblind. And they go into this whole speech about how they didn't see any color. And so I finally started to say to people, I find it fascinating that you are colorblind and everyone around you is white. Mm. <laughs> oh. And I mean that these are not fighting words and I'm not being disrespectful. It just was what I encountered a lot, especially in my corporate life. And so ultimately I said, this isn't working. This whole notion of being colorblind is not working. I have a mixed race child, although I explain to my husband all the time, if you're a little bit black, you're black. And he keeps saying to me, she's half white. And I'm like, she's black. <laughs> I do it all the time. I was like, we don't call Barack Obama the first half black president or half white president. We call him the first black president. 
So anyway, my child is mixed race. And one of the things that I just noticed from children who are playing with their friends, et cetera, is no one wants to go there. No one at all. And I've educated Everest in a, um, she's fluent in Mandarin. So she goes to a school with basically mostly all Chinese kids, which is a challenge because she's half black. So she has really curly hair and she wants her hair to be straight and calm. Calm. <laughs> calm. Anyway, so. We had this conversation about, I said, you know, George, I've really been challenged by this idea that no one wants to go there. No one wants to talk about it. And I think we're actually exacerbating this problem. And so I want to go the other way. I'm asking people to notice race, to talk about it, to have conversations in ways that will allow us all to learn from each other and grow. I can tell you, my child going to a Chinese school, Everest literally said to me one day, my husband said to her, she was two years old. He said, Baba, because that's what she calls him, which is dad in Chinese. Baba is white and mama is black. Everest is black and white. She looks at him and she says, and Mandarin. (laughs) Like she literally thinks she's part Chinese because of her whole experience of speaking Chinese and loving me fan, which is rice and all these other things. And as a result of that, I literally stepped away and I said, This conversation has to change in such a way that we can recognize these differences, celebrate them, and really not be intimidated by the idea that even bringing it up and talking about it is bad. Last point. So I often, and I'm in boardrooms and all sorts of places where you would actually least expect, I talk about things that are uniquely Black. And I'm not doing this like with a fist in the hair. I'm doing it as like Black people use washcloths. We do. And I didn't know that that wasn't a human condition until I went to college. And I saw people just put soap against their skin. And I was like, we use washcloths. And literally, you want a conversation starter? Talk about differences in our Black community with people who are not Black. And they're like, what are you talking about? And it is a great way of literally bridging cultural divides in a way, honestly, that I think moves us forward as a society. Just like I've learned tons of things from my daughter going to a Chinese school about things that are uniquely Chinese. And I think ultimately I'm a better person for it. She's a better person for it. And whoever I'm sharing the information with is better and makes these conversations less taboo and less of a feeling of if we bring this up, you are implying somehow I'm a racist. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, can we open up our hearts and minds to understand that for minorities in our country, we actually know more about the majority community than they know about us. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do. We know a lot about you. And I bet that newsflash of Black people using washcloths Male, female is news to some people in the room who are not black. Question. Do you think the one and only sort of philosophy still holds true? In other words, do a lot of times in corporate settings, they crack the door open enough for one person of color to eke in and then they shut it and don't let anybody else in. And how do we change that? Are they afraid that we're all going to get together and have some kind of meeting and then there's going to be a takeover or what is going on? Why can't there be more than one? It's challenging and it's a good question. And it's something that I've wondered about a lot. I think that the one th- in the rooms that I've been fortunate enough to be in, I think 
the one who goes in has to make sure they bring the others. Mm. And I think you have to just recognize what your responsibility is there. I can't say in every situation I've been successful. And when I haven't, I've decided maybe that room is not for me. But I have really tried to make sure that we're extending the opportunities as opposed to just holding them. Someone said to me the other day, which I thought was a really brilliant quote, you know, when it comes to power, do you share or do you hoard? Wow. And I thought that was like a brilliant, do you share or do you hoard? And I think sharing is a better idea, which then underscores the whole idea. This is not a zero-sum game, so it doesn't have to just be one of us, one woman or one person of color. The other thing that I think about that is making sure that, as again, we extend that power so that we can share it, that we don't get... I'll give you an example. I was helping someone in a company that I knew very well, and the person said to me, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm going to do a good job in this, that, and the other. And I said, you can't embarrass me. I'm totally secure in my role and place in this organization. If it doesn't work out, that would be unfortunate. But my reputation stays intact because there are plenty of white guys who fail all the time. Like, and no one's thinking that it reflects on their reputation. So there's some of that with us that when we do become the first person in the room, we're scared that by bringing in someone else and if they're not successful, it'll hurt our brand or reputation. We have to let all of that go. I heard this other quote that I just thought was so interesting. It it was really, really thoughtful. It said, if you're going to help other people, you help them and you divest yourself or disengage from the outcome. Whatever the outcome is, it is. You just help and that should be enough. So I think this idea of how do we make sure that there aren't just firsts in the room is it's a two-way street. We have to make sure there's a effort by the person who's in the room to expand the circle, but also we hold the people in the room accountable so that they feel that it is their job as well. I am going to move on, but I just find this so fascinating, particularly because these are things that we're not really talking about these days because they are uncomfortable conversations and we all want to act like everything is okay. But what we know is that there's this sort of unrest just under the surface and we know what happens with that when it's not addressed. So we really, these conversations need to be happening. You say that your mother told you when you were younger, a young woman, a young girl, that people wouldn't always treat you well. Is that a lesson that you also impart to your daughter? And gosh, that's so heartbreaking because we know that's true, but we have to prepare them, no? One, she was very direct with me. And my mother had that conversation with me when I was a very small child. I say in my tell talk, I was coming home from a birthday party and I went to a school where there were not a lot of black kids, especially in the early years. When it got to be around seventh and eighth grade, they integrated a lot of other students. But I was looking at a class photo for when I was in like second or third grade and there were only two black girls and 28 kids. And we were the only black kids in the class. There were no boys, me and Angela Barnes. When my mother, when I came home from birthday parties and things like that, when I was a little kid, the first time she did it, it was a little jarring. And she said to me, how did they treat you? Mm. And I just thought that was like very odd. I was a child. And I said, why wouldn't think of a child? You don't think that someone won't treat you well. And she looked at me and she said, they won't always treat you well. Mm. And that is probably a controversial approach for some. I think in the Black community, again, and Hispanic community, I think it's more normal, maybe not at the age that my mom went at it, but this idea of preparing us for what was coming. And she prepared me in such a way that it wouldn't be a shock and awe if there were moments of 
pain and discomfort. And in some ways, I'd say it's, I was conditioned for it. Mm-hmm. Not conditioned in a way of expecting any less of myself or her expecting any less of me, but just understanding, again, life was not fair. There were going to be slights. I would have to rise above them, deal with them, not complain, not have it as a reason that I did not succeed. She did not allow for that. And so as a result of that, you had to figure out how you were going to overcome that situation. When it comes to Everest, it's interesting because she's only four and I do absolutely believe that that conversation is going to be very important given the society that we're in. I don't think a lot has changed from when I was a small child on some of these issues. And I think that we have to be honest with ourselves. And ultimately, my mom was just really honest with me. She didn't overdo it or underdo it. She just told me the truth. And it actually was the truth. She didn't have an ax to grind. She was just preparing me. And I think that when you think about how we have to prepare Black boys to drive or now immigrant and Hispanic children for all the things that they have to confront around this country, this is not new. And it's unfortunate, but it just is. So will I make sure that Everest does not experience shock and awe if something, if there's a slight or something happens to her? I absolutely will. I gave this speech once for Women on Wall Street, the speech was called, and I wrote this in the chapter that I added to the book Lean In. Sheryl Sandberg asked me to write a chapter on women of color for the college edition of the book because I told her, I said, since you're not a woman of color, trying to tackle this is going to be too hard. Right. I really, I just, I said, it's just you, it's just going to be too hard. And I told her, I said, I think you should acknowledge that there are issues for women of color, but... I think you should stop there and acknowledge it. So she came back and she said, okay, you write about it. So I wrote about it and I opened up this chapter by saying that I'd given this speech on Wall Street and I opened it up by saying, I feel sorry for white women. The women in the audience were like, and I said, this is why I say that. I feel sorry for white women because I went to Princeton. I had great roommates. They were not black. And I said, my mom prepared me. She said, how did they treat you? She told me what to expect starting when I was a young age. And I had friends call me who I went to college with after we entered the workforce and they would say things like, Melody, you cannot believe what is happening. People aren't treating me well. Or I don't get paid the same as this other person. And I was like, yeah, I learned that when I was five. (laughs) And there was a bit of a stammer from the shock and sort of the blow. And I said, I think that we, in some ways in our minority communities get a little bit of a leg up because we're taught. And so therefore we don't have that stammer of like, oh, I have to get my sea legs back because someone just hit me below the belt and I wasn't expecting it. I think that we look out and this is a beautiful and diverse Diverse. crowd and we're happy. We're all here celebrating one another. And I think that when we all leave here, we have to remember some things that you're going to go back to your lives and we're going to go back to our lives and my life as the mother of young adults, really. I mean, my reality is that I have a 19-year-old boy who delivers pizzas to put himself through college. He drives an eight-year-old car that's black. He loves Drake. So he's like, I live in Chappaqua, New York. At one o'clock in the morning, is he going to be okay while he's bumping Drake with some pies in the back seat? That's my reality. And that's not, when you tell people that, it's almost like, Really? Because they're like, but Renee, somehow I'm somehow insulated from that. And I'm not. You're not. People of color are not. And we really 
need to understand that. We really but it's also, this is the thing, and that's to make it clear, this is not a cross we're bearing. This is not something that that is holding us back, and we're all right. very proud, and I would not be born another person in any other skin color. I'm very, very, very proud and happy to be a Black woman. Mm-hmm. I really, really am. I've never been one of those people who wanted to trade places with anyone, Mm -hmm. ever. I've just never, ever, ever been that person. And so I think we have to recognize, well, that reality does exist. I think our goal is, at least in the conversation for me, as we think about being color brave, is just to ask yourself, have you invited people in your world who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't come from where you come from? When you walk into a room and it's all one of anything, all black, all white, whatever it might be, all one of anything, are you getting the best out of the opportunity there to share and converse and create bigger and better ideas? The example I give in my TED Talk, I said, if I showed you the board of ExxonMobil and every single person on the board was a black male, you would say, what is up with that? Right. So what is going to happen when we see boards that are all white male, where we naturally begin to say, what is up with that? That's weird and not right. And so it could be everything from a PTA meeting or hiring practices at a company or brainstorming at work, whatever it might be, can you invite more people into your life? I love this story where I have a really good friend who was the editor of a major metropolitan newspaper. And he said that the only time he stopped the presses in the history of his career as a publisher is when they did a special edition, a special pullout section on this city. I can't be too specific to give it away. And the city had a special anniversary. And he put two of the best reporters at the paper on putting together this special section. And the city was majority minority. And the special section was written. And he opened it up. They dropped it on his table the day that it was being printed. And there was no person of color in the entire special section. Oh, my God. Not one. And he said he literally stopped the presses and he said he sat and reflected. And he said, these are two of our best reporters. They're fantastic. They're smart. They're extraordinarily capable. But this is their lens. Right. Right. This is how they see the world. And so he led him to ask this question that I now think is code in an excellent way for making sure you create an environment that is diverse so that you can have a better outcome. He had a a question that he would always ask, is everyone in the room? Mm. And that's just so simple. Is everyone in the room? Because all the data shows, and there's an excellent book called The Difference by Scott Page, who's a professor at the University of Michigan, who created the first mathematical formula for diversity that shows if you're trying to solve a really hard problem, super hard, you want people of diverse backgrounds and even diverse intellect. And the example that he gives is the smallpox epidemic when it was ravaging Europe. He said that they brought the best scientists in the whole world together to try to solve for this thing that was killing lots and lots of people. And the person who led to the solution was a dairy farmer who noticed that the milkmaids were not dying. And so the vaccine is bovine-based because of the milk farmer noticing that the cows were somehow insulating the milkmaids. And so this idea that no one expected the, maybe he was a genius, the farmer, but at the end of the day, probably the least likely person to have led to the cure would have been a farmer, not these famous world scientists. And his point is, again, if you're trying to solve hard problems, you want all those different perspectives. In my world, in the investment world, we're trying to solve hard problems every day. 
What do we invest in? Why do we think that it will grow? Why will it be better? What do we do if we make a mistake? Those are the questions every single day we are challenged with. And I find it so interesting that when you talk about finance and investing, people naturally talk about diversification. They say you should diversify. They do. They say you should put all of your eggs in one basket. You should have different. But when it comes to people in a room in those same financial institutions, this idea of diversification doesn't hold. It's an interesting thing to just play around with with your mind about not just the ills of our society. You know, I heard someone say America was born with a birth defect. Mm. Our birth defect was slavery. And the thing about a birth defect is that it's not fatal. You can live with it. And we obviously have. So we've been born with this birth defect. And we get scared about having the conversation. And in not having the conversation, we're actually holding ourselves and our society back. Let's start with how you got to your day job and kind of how you got involved in one of the most male-dominated This is what I tell people. I don't think there's an accident that I work in the investment business because I was desperate to understand money as a child, given the ups and downs Mm -hmm. that we had financially. I grew up, our lights used to get turned off. We used to get evicted. Our phone used to get disconnected. We were the family that had the bounce checks on the wall at the store. We were those people. And if my mom had to get food, she would bounce a check. I grew up with no health care and health care for me was going to the emergency room when I needed a throat culture. Mm. And so I know, I mean, I really do, which is why I think as a child, I really, really, really wanted to understand how to have a better life. And I think that's how I ended up in the financial services industry. Were you good at math as a child? It's not just math, but yes, I was. Uh, because I'm um, asking, but it's not I took, just math. I took algebra three times in high school. <laughs> so I just need to know, is that the barrier that I need to overcome? Well, I think algebra is important for other reasons. Okay. They say there's a direct correlation between passing freshman algebra and graduating from high school. It's basically one of the main things that happens that leads people to drop out of school. But... Algebra was not my problem. I was actually very good at math, but I think people distill investments into math and it's not just math, it's actually common sense. And so the whole underlying thesis of investing is common sense. Mm. And if you can distill that common sense and really break it down, there are people whose paths we can follow. The greatest investor of all time lives, Warren Buffett, and he has a playbook and we can watch it. And I love one of the things I once heard him say where he said, everyone thinks I'm looking for a needle in a haystack. I just look for haystacks. Mm. He owns things like Coke and American Express. And when he tells you why he owns them, it is fascinating to hear. He talks about, I know people drink less soda, but he says that your taste buds cannot be satiated by a Diet Coke. Mm. It can be satiated by a cream soda, where you can't drink anymore, but you actually can keep drinking Uh something like a Diet Coke, which makes you drink more and more and more of it, which is a really interesting thing. It's like, it's just fascinating to get it. So he's like, that's right there in front of you. And he said, if you gave him a billion dollars to start a competitor to Coca-Cola, he'd give you your money back because he says you actually couldn't win. Wow. And so there are a lot of examples we're investing when you look at your everyday life. I always give examples of companies we own. Like we own a company that you all know. We used to own for 20 years Clorox. And I always tell people, 93 cents a quart underneath your kitchen cabinet, you do not say to yourself, are we going to eat or buy bleach this week? Right. It's just not one of those decisions. 
Your decision is not changed by where interest rates are. It's a staple. So you literally would joke all the time when we own the stock, if my name could be Melody Clorox, I would sign right up for that, <laughs> right? And so when you think about when it comes to investing and your everyday life, it becomes actually very, very obvious how you can do very, very well by even just observing your environment and investing that way or hiring smart people like people at Ariel to do that for you and ultimately be able to grow your money. But the part of it is that it's not about math and it's just about common sense. We are not going to have enough money when we retire if we think Social Security is going to be it. You're not. The average Social Security check in this country right now is just about $1,100. My mother, who was an entrepreneur for a lot of her life and dropped in and out of working jobs, had six kids. When she died, her Social Security check was $400 a month. Mm. There was no way that you could live on that, which was why, of course, she kept saying that I was her retirement plan. But that's actually not a way to actually create a sustainable situation because you end up having... Adult children taking care of you while they're trying to take care of young children. They never take care of themselves and the cycle starts all over again. So the common sense starts off with, I don't want to be old and poor. Mm. That's where it starts. And if you start with that common sense and say, I'm just going to put a little bit away. I literally challenge people in the beginning, save 50 cents a day, double it to a dollar a day, make it two dollars make it $5, you would be amazed by the amount of money that you waste on a daily or weekly basis, even when you are strapped for cash. There is that perpetual $20 that was in your wallet that you did not know where it went. And it could be going to a newsstand and buying magazines. It could be bottled water. It could be whatever it is your thing is where you find it just kind of disappears. And those are people I have found living in tough circumstances. There is an amount of waste. And if we could just capture that, there was a statistic that in one ward in Chicago, which is sort of a division of the city, one ward in the Black community spent $80 million a year on lottery tickets. Mm. If I could invest that money and compound it, it would be life-changing. Seriously life-changing. Right. All right. So I'm getting the five-minute mark. So what should every woman know about financial planning for mid-career and retirement then? Just the double-up thing is kind of what you're talking about? Always keep your own financial identity, even if you're married. It's very, very important. It's very hard to start over. So again, even this is not, as I say... Sometimes the guy just doesn't drive by. We know that. But the bigger issue is, as women, we make our biggest financial decisions in times of great emotional stress, usually death or divorce. And that is very hard to have a clear mind and to think smart when you're in those scenarios. You don't want to be learning where accounts are after a spouse has passed away or how the beneficiaries were listed, et cetera. So you need to have some comprehension of that. The other thing that I tell women all the time is make sure you understand everything you're doing, you're modeling to your children, everything. We learn our money habits from our parents. So if you feel fear, anxiety, stress as it relates to money, 100% guaranteeing you, you're teaching it to your child, 100%. And the only way to change that is to shift and change the paradigm. Last question. If you could give one piece of advice to 21-year-old Melody Hobson, what would it be? And also include her good friend, Renee Seiler. What would you give her 21-year-old self? What would her advice be? Mine is specific to me. And I think that when you look back on your life, I mean, I think those are very personal things that you think about in terms of that advice at that young age. Mine, honestly, 
would be to have relaxed a little bit. Mm. I've always been very high strung, mm. very, very driven. I have my own form of anxiety and I've had to like learn to calm myself. I always joke with people that that's why I married Yoda's dad. <laughs> George is very calm and wise. There's so much wisdom there. He says, I speed him up and he slows me down. But I worried a lot as a child, a lot, because of the circumstances we were in. I was always worried about where we were going to live or what was going to happen to us. I carried that into my young life. And I carried that into a lot of my life. And that I fed on that worry and energy in a way that propelled me. But there is that saying, what got you there won't necessarily get you the next place that you need to go. So in my own mind, I'm very cognizant, this is not going to work for this next phase. And I have to learn to be practice more mindfulness and to have less anxiety and to understand that if I can calm myself, I can be much more effective. Thank you very much. Melody Hobson, this has been wonderful. Thank you so, so much. You just heard from Melody Hobson, pioneering executive, president of Ariel Investments, and chairman of the board of DreamWorks Animation. To learn more about her current work, please visit www.arielinvestments.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you found this session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more best breakouts from the Conferences for Women.